So today we will <clears throat> continue in the Gospel of John with the High Priestly Prayer. And I want to make a note of some sort. Uh, many of you may have different Bible versions that may have titled the passage a little bit differently. And it brings some attention to some different aspects that each version comes with. If you have the new international version or the new King James version, you'll notice that there are certain titles that are bracketed. For example, for the first five verses, it states Jesus prays to be glorified. And then subsequently, with the additions uh, at the breaks at six, and in particular at verse 20, you'll note titles as Jesus prayed for himself, and as he also prays for his disciples. But then, some other translations may have it overarching. It just may say the prayer of Jesus. Now, these titles, nothing's wrong with them. They're correct. But, they do risk missing the pivotal role to which the Master is fulfilling with his prayer. To which he takes the office of a priest. So, to which when you do see in your New American Standard Bible or your English Standard Version, the high priestly prayer, even to the very novice reader, they can see that a role is being played. And this framework does give nuance, and especially perspective, to enrich the reader's understanding of the actual text. Just some food for thought, especially for those watching in the telecast. To which now, as we come to the prayer, we are putting it to a close. We have arrived at verses 24 to 26, which reads, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Let's now go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day in which this day was consecrated by your hand and by your word to be a day to give honor and glory to you. Though many individuals may not see the use of this day, it is us with us being here today to show you by faith we are here to obey and to listen. So now in taking into the means of grace that your son has afforded us, let us with a childlike love and a willing mind see what he has shown for the foundation of the church to show again that he is indeed with them. He took and sworn that he would take the diligence of their salvation. And may it be, Lord, that we see this, we take this, and believe that indeed Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing in his name, we indeed have eternal life. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, we are going to put a close to the Master's words before he enters back to the garden. But I think what's notably missing in regards to John's account with this prayer 
is that there are no interjecting variables from the outside world and there's no repetitions that the master undergoes as it was seen in the synoptic gospels see by introduction i want to bring some sort of comparison in luke's narrative we see that after praying fervently an angel was strengthening him after which he awakens his disciples from slumber luke 22 43 to 46 and matthew and mark's depiction adds that he pulls them together to greet and i quote the one who betrays me is at hand mark 14 42 matthew 26 46. now if you are familiar with the synoptic gospels then you may be even wondering even further because those are just a small tad bit. But the master, when he was praying, said some distinct words. And a question may arise, even those who's watching. Why does the master not state what he prayed in the Synoptic Gospels? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's narrative, he stated in one iteration or another. In Matthew 26, 39, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will but as you will. In Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And lastly, in Luke <clears throat> 22, 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Therefore, let's address this with my introduction. Because to answer this question and to address those missing details properly, I want to bring to your attention the intent to which the beloved writes this account. In John 20, 31, he stated, this is what the master was set to accomplish. To know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, it's imperative for us to acknowledge this for what the master then prays. It should move our faith to and believe that indeed he has accomplished this goal. It's very, very simple. So then, to bring to the understanding of his approach to death, we are given evidence already but we will see further because we're going to approach to chapter 18 uh, in the next sermon when Jason comes back that he approached death willingly the passage from John 12 provides some insight here the master stated my soul has become troubled and expressing that his soul is troubled Jesus reveals the depth of his humanity Acknowledging the weight of God's hand upon and pressed on himself. But however, in the same breath, he declares his acceptance of the purpose for which he came to. For he continues, And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. And then with courage he stated, Father, Glorify your name. 
The father responds, affirms that he has glorified his name already and will do so again. Speaking to the divine affirmation of the master's mission. And as the narrative continued, did he not exclaim as the people shivered at the, at the rolls of thunder, this voice was not for me, but for you. See the difference? You see the difference? Now, believe it or not, many commentators throughout the history of the church have told over this because they were curious, in fact, even dumbfounded, that the master, to be fully God, how can he be dealt with grief and sorrow? Calvin even iterated and stated, though God had already tried his son by certain Preparatory exercises, he now wounds him more sharply by a nearer prospect of death. And he strikes his mind with a terror to which he had not been accustomed to. But as it appears to be inconsistent with the divine glory of Christ, that he was seized with such trembling and sadness, many commentators have labored with toil and anxiety because they could not evade the difficulty. So, let's address this then. See, in order to address even this issue, I'm going to show the harmony and the consistency of the Messiah, and especially within the confounds of John's work and understanding of the goal that he wanted to show the Master accomplished. The grief and sorrow was proper. And even though it was narrated in the Synoptic Gospels, the Spirit moved those writers to note the humanity of Christ, especially since that is a big portion in his function as Christ, the mediator. But John wants to show the humanity throughout the gospel. And when we arrive at John 17, especially after the Master is praying and taking note, his role as the perfect high priest is denoted well. Hence why my commercial brought up the title and how you want to see it when you approach the text. You see, throughout the Gospel of John, the Master experienced genuine grief, sorrow, and he endured challenges and hostility of his earthly existence. Noted especially in chapters 11 and chapter 12. So with John taking to the past, the master's high priestly prayer, he's making the emphasis to show even from the master's own words. The humanity is seen in how he speaks with the Father. His humiliation is emphasized and shown with the way he speaks, with the care and the words he shows for his people. Because again, the Master had a goal to accomplish. That we will believe he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And note, even by his own words, what he stated in his own prayer, 
John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Therefore, to bring this introduction to a close, as his humanity is exemplified throughout the Gospel of John, it rings more true and true with every word he prays. For being the perfect high priest, it was important that he understood the fainting of the soul, or as Hebrews 12 verse 3 states, the dir hostility from sinners. It states here, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary. Or, in another version, you may note that the fainting in your souls, and you will not lose heart. And his humanity, he was beset with weakness, because as a high priest, he must be able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and misguided. Hebrews 5, verse 2. And unlike the old administrators who offered up prayers with tainted hands because of their lack of piety, 1 Samuel 15, 20 through 22, and his humanity when he offered up prayers and supplications, he was heard. John 11, 41 through 44. Therefore, in seguring now, Listen to how Hebrews 5 verse 7 puts it well. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with a loud crying and tears to one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. If this has strengthened your faith now, when we segue to the text, consider how he's going to put it to a close. With verse 24, it states, Father, I desire they also whom you've given me be where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Here by calling on the Father once again, the piety in humanity is further exemplified. For he positions the term and calls to him prior to naming himself. Now to speak in human terms and to speak in layman terms, it is like a child who wants to get the full attention of their parent. They will denote the title because there's an earnest desire and want that you want to be granted. He continues, I desire that they also whom you've given me be where I am. Here the master is denoting that the progression of the salvation of the elect be not interrupted. And if we note closely just these words, whom you also given me be with me where I am, He's actually spoke this once before. In John 7, the Jews sought him, for it was proper that all the Jews come and commemorate the Feast of Booths. John 7, 1 through 3, and verse 10. 
As he was teaching in the temple, he called them out for the hypocrisy with the law of Moses. John 7, 16-24 Though the people knew of his earthly residence in the land, they did not believe that he was the Christ. Haha, <laughs> but his words, when he spoke, shined so brightly they were left inquisitive, baffled, and blinded. John 7, 11 through 15, 25 through 27, 31, and 40 to 52. So among their muttering, John 7, 32, he stated the following, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Another instance is in John 8. He declared by verse 8 of uh, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. The various members of the Sanhedrin found fault with this statement. For earlier in the morning, they could not find grounds to accuse him when they, when they brought to him the adulterous woman. John 8, 1 through 11. Therefore, in listening to him now, they accuse him of lying because he testified about himself. John 8, 13. But unlike early in the day, and to which he stoops down to write on the ground, he now responds directly. And again, here is the iteration of the statement. For while testifying about himself, he denotes he holds a privilege from the Father. For as I showed with chapter 7, the Father is the one who sent him. Here now in John 8, 14. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Another iteration is by verse 21. I go away. You will seek me. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Under their perception that the salvation is from the Jews, they lacked the proper faith or repentance unto life to believe that he was indeed the Messiah. In fact, as the Master shows, my sheep know my voice. Therefore, they are unable to go wherever he is going because the Master then firmly explains, as shown here by verse 23 and 24, John 8, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, John 13 and 14 makes this iteration. But now here's the shift in the prospect of who is he speaking to. His elect. His sheep. And again, Note the adage by John thirteen thirty three, Little children, I am with you a little, a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then in John 14, 3 through 4, if I go to repair a place from you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know where I am going. See here, 
the position of the master is juxtaposed with those who are not of his and those who are. And as humanity is shown throughout the prayer, I brought to you at the very beginning the audience to keep in mind. The words that are used to show that he sworn in himself the diligence and care he has for the elect. And as the prayer is coming to a close, he is going to be the assurity and he is stating it. That the salvation of the elect will come to its completion. It's worthy to note that by chapter 13 and chapter 14, the master is making this inference even to stick to them. I said these to the Jews once before, but I'm going to clarify it and say it to you. For in chapter 13, the master is going to be glorified by the sacrifice he's going to take. And from this sacrifice, God is going to be glorified because his plan of redemption is going to be efficacious for the elect. His people is going to witness the resurrection of the son bodily. And why is it so important is even I can use an adage for today. When we go to the cemetery and we look at those who are buried, there's two thought processes in mind. Where did they go? And one day, you know you're going to be in that same estate. The difference in the mindset is the individuals at heart. To the humanists, they could have had their souls be placed in a tree or they could have came back as their favorite farm animal. Hence why some of them are very sacrilegious when it comes to various creatures. But to the Christian, because you know the truth and you know your master and his voice, when you go to the cemetery, though you are saddened that they're not here anymore. You believe another day you're going to see them. As noted with the promise that he made to them of what preparation the son is going to take to seek their salvation to its completion. The master iterated it before verse 33 in John 13. By stating it this in verse 32, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. By chapter 14 in verse, verse 2, upon the, upon the resurrection of the master, the immediate ascension to sit at the right hand of God he must be the first fruits to those who are resurrected. In chapter 14, by verse 2, the, the master states, In my father's house are million dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
So as it now resonates in chapter 17 with verse 24, take this in and note the subsequent clause, I desire that they, who you also have given me, be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory to which you've given me. The effects of the afterlife is something that is upon a lot of individuals' mind. I was at a, I was at a establishment and an individual talked to me recently about when he went to the cemetery, he wondered why people go to funerals. They don't know. That's the difference. As Christians, when we see death, it's only just the beginning. It's not the end as many of the humanists will have it. And note the humanity that the master takes to in speaking to the father. To which he shows a relationship that he desires the glory that he's received and being resurrected. Your souls goes up, but not your body. When you see him, you will see the body to which he died in. And when that time comes and that last person is born and the time ends, you'll return back to the body that you died in. And when it resurrects, it'll be a beautiful thing. Our confession, a statement. We said it today. We stated, I believe that at death, the spirit having departed from the body immediately passes into God's glorious presence. You see, this is the reason why we take to this confessional standard. Because by our own list and by our own mouth, we've stated this is what I believe. When you juxtapose the event at death, for the humanist, his glorious presence is going to come at a terrifying moment because they did not believe. But by what we stated and what we attribute to, for us and for those of the elect, when we beheld the Christ, we will see that glory, the body. John wrote in his first epistle to his church, 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Further in, in John 17, in verse 24, he stated, by the closing of the clause, 
for you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, this is subsequent and this is synonymous as with when he stated earlier in his prayer with verse number five, the glory I had with you before the world existed. Here, the master is making known he is the son of God. John 1, 1 through 3. And while yet the master hasn't experienced death and the resurrection, in the first five verses in the introduction, he declared he's glorified the Father on earth and fulfilled the earthly duties assigned to him as Christ the mediator. But here's the shift. As now the prayer has now become full circle and is coming to a close. He's making it known. He's going to fulfill. Actually, he will fulfill the exalted duties assigned to him as Christ the mediator. Now, the terms that I'm juxt juxtapositioning is fulfilled and fulfill. So there is the ED versus without the ED or will fulfill in the prior. And the reason why is because the note of the work for Christ and the office of mediator was twofold. He had his humiliation, but he also has his work as his, and his exaltation. In his humiliation, the master humbled himself and his conception and birth. For when the fullness of time came, he became the son of a man. John 1, 14 to 15. While here on earth, he subjected himself to the law. We have laws that we have to abide by. No one here can say they have perfectly obeyed them. But he did. John 1, 17. John 7, 9 through 19, 19 to 24. John 8, 16 through 18. And John 15, 24 through 26. But then his humiliation is also going to be in his death. And now I posited and gave you a small portion of that earlier on. But I know when Jason returns, as we approach chapter 18, you're going to see this effect in full circle. So I won't touch too much on that. But in the context of our sermon, in the juxtaposition of the humiliation versus his exaltation, his exaltation is covered in this. He will raise from the dead on the third day, having the same body in which he suffered. By, and get this, by his own power. John 10, verse 18. And upon his resurrection, it will be a show and a world, and a care to the world itself that he is indeed the Son of God. Romans 1, verse 4. And what does this resurrection make of? the found effect on humankind. Death is vanquished. 
I think what happened and I think what transpired with human beings is we've realized what we've been afforded in this life. And if it's good, we want the good times to roll. If it's bad, we want it to end as quickly as possible. That is a harsh reality to many individuals. But what's interesting is that prior to the master's resurrection, at no point did any individual would have thought someone would have beaten death. From the time Adam spoke and taught his children and his children and his children, and Moses writes and various other people write, they knew death was on the horizon. The Grim Reaper, as the humanists would denote, seems to be this individual to which no human being can defeat. And as I showed you, or I was trying to explain with the example that the master was showing in his prayer and his humanity, he shows the difference in regards to who he is, how he operated, and what he came to accomplish. And in vanquishing death and the power that it had over human beings, no longer can you ever say death is undefeated. That is no longer the language anymore. And what's amazing about this newfound hope is that he had to show to the people that indeed he beat it. So in his exaltation, he appeared and conversed with his apostles and his disciples. Thomas, put your finger here. And Luke, give me a fish. When we get to John 21, we're going to see a little bit of that. In his exaltation, upon appearing conversing with his apostles and disciples, speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, John 21, Acts 1, 2 through 3, 2 through 3, he will now go upon finishing after 40 days and visibly Enter into the highest heavens with all fullness of joy. Psalm 16.11, Acts 2.28. With all glory, John 17, verse 5 and 24. And he will denote upon his arrival, having power over all things, heaven and earth. Ephesians 1.22. Now, you might be wondering, what is God doing with his time? The Christ, the Godhead, they created time for man. So time exists in him. It doesn't exist outside of him. 
But this is the ramifications of the resurrection. And upon his bodily ascension to the heavens on high, he appears to God continually as a human. And how beautiful that is. Because in continually appearing to God as a human, he can make intercession for the elect because it was on his merit that he perfectly obeyed and did the perfect sacrifice on earth. John 16, 26 to 28, Hebrews 1, verse 3, 1 John 2, 1 through 2, Romans 8, verse 34. A lot of individuals think that when we stand up here, we tell you what to do. That's not the case. We are just vessels to proclaim the liberties that Christ has done for believers. So as he fulfills his exalted duties, he is procuring your conscience. He's taking hold of it. Romans 14 verse 4. James 4 verse 12. It is by his continual work. He is freeing you from the doctrines and the commandments from man. So that anything contrary to his word. Or your obedience to the one true God. He is actively at work. Preventing it from it taking hold of you. John 4. 23 to 24. Matthew 23. 8 through 10. Acts 5. Verse 29. All the while. Procuring your conscience. And taking hold of your mind. He is declaring his will and the will of God for the people to you and all benefits are being applied to believers when they come to the faith. John 17, 9, 20 and also here now, verse 24. As I'm going to bring this pr prayer and this sermon to a conclusion, we have arrived at verse 25 to 26. The Master states, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. This is a complete thought to which the two verses have separated it into two suppositions. In my prior sermon, I did take to a method to which I wanted to exclaim one verse and have it follow up and then show the continuity. 
But because the prayer is coming to a close, I'm going to take, as Jason has done well, a broader theme. Because I want to see, and what I hope is that you see the harmony of the Master's Prayer from beginning to end. In his concluding statement, he denoted the profound reverence that he has as God the Son for God the Father. For he interjects the adjective righteous. Alike to the beginning of the prayer where John notes the master lifted up his eyes to heaven. And also by verse 11, you heard him call him holy father. The master is making a distinct characteristic attributed to the father. He is the envelope of all that is righteous and good and holy. Now upon the master's call to the father in his humiliation on earth, he's attesting he's always known the father. Let's bring some harmony to the text or from the text. From all eternity, the master was in the bosom of the father. So he knows and can attest of him. John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So you see, prior to the Master actually um, being born, He was in His pre-incarnate state. He wasn't in a body. But a body had to be prepared for him through intricate details that stood the test of time. And every individual involved was selected. As he could, as it continues, because the Father is all good, all righteous, and all holy, the world has not known this. And do not know this, they cannot know him. Now, in some of your Bibles, and what I read today, I have stated even though. And there's another iteration that states although. But the position to which this conjunction is making is that the world's knowledge of him is going to be compared to the master's knowledge of him. What did the world say in indicating their knowledge of him? The Jews who were given the oracles of God, exclaimed that they were indeed God's children by lineage, birthright, descendants of Abraham. John 10, 33, 39, and 41. What does the master state? He tests them. He tests the world. You claim to be God's children, huh? What does the master state? John 10, 37 with verses 39 through 40 and 42 to 44. I know that you are Abraham's descendant, but yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I've seen with my father. Therefore, also do the things 
Also, you do the things which you've heard from your father. So here's his juxtaposition. You claim to be God's children. Well, then God the son is right in front of you. Listen to how the master continues. Here with 39, verse 39. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Because Abraham believed God. Jason brought it up very well. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I also heard from God. So Abraham hears from God and does what God says. Jesus hears from God and does what God commands. The master states, Abraham did not do this. So then look at the final nail in the coffin. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came forth from him. I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? The answer is because you cannot hear my word. Your father is of the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is the liar and the father of lies. Note the difference. So in hearing this and hearing the master make his prayer for his people. The knowledge and knowing God is what is at work. Especially with the preceding verse from verse 24. The benefits and the workings and how he's going to apply those, do, uh, those uh, benefits to the elect upon his ascension. The master juxtaposed what is in the heart of man. Because he knows what's in the heart of man. John 2, 24 to 25. And he compared them. And he showed even by example. But in here, praying, compared them to the knowledge of knowing the Father. John 17, 25. So what the master is detailing as the prayer is indeed coming to a close. Is that the master's knowledge now. What he's heard and had the Father speak to him is now being conveyed to us. So what is it that the Father wants us to know? That, John 17, verse 2, Christ has been given authority over all flesh, and to all those who have been given to Christ, He will give eternal life. By John 17, verse 6, that Christ has the Father's name manifested throughout the entire 
world. By John 17, verse 12, <laughs> to the apostles, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me and guarded them. And not one was lost. To us, we are given the same. But because he spoke of the apostles, note here, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Why? Because the scripture must be fulfilled. So his will must be done. John 17 verse 14. I have given them your word. He gave the apostles the word. And in return, the apostles grew. And like I said, as he told Peter, fed, tended to, and cared for the sheep. And what was the result? The world hated them. If you recall, I showed you how all the apostles, except the beloved, lost their lives. This is not a religion for those who are comfortable. But why did the world hate them? Because they were not like the Jews and lean on their birthright. They spoke what the master heard from the father and reiterated it back to the church because it was necessary for their faith because they knew the benefits of salvation and it was imperative that we knew and know this too. And as Jesus showed and compared and had juxtaposed the world of their true father, what does the master pray? He details, especially of what he asks for the apostles. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. His ask is of us as well to preserve us. And he's continually doing that while he sits at the right hand of the father. But then take into account. The sanctification that arrives as a believer comes into the faith. The master stated in John 17, 17 to 19, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. He asked the Father to sanctify them, in the truth because his word is truth. When I was last here, I had the sermon on verses 20 to 23, but here, but 22 to 23, there is a glory which is given to the elect. The humanists do not know of this glory. And the only time they can make any reference of it is when the church operate with one mind and they see them march and move to one beat. The master stated, the glory which you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me. 
they may be perfected in unity so that the world, it will be a proof to the world, they will see, they will know you sent me. The master heard all from the father. John 14, 31, John 15, 15. And the master desires to impart to the believer past, present, and future the characteristics of this oneness of mind as he has with his father. For he emphasized in the beginning with the prayer. And as John has shown and moved as he showed the proof of this gospel, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Father entrusted and endued the Son of God with all faculties to accomplish this task. The Father sent the Son so that the elect will believe and have eternal life for their hope and betterment of their salvation in the Son of God's redeeming work. And all in all, what is a message or telling point for us today? If you indeed believe Jesus Christ after what you heard today, just know, as the Father loves the Son, He in turn will also love you. John fourteen twenty three. If anyone loves me and he will keep my word, my Father will love him and we, the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our abode with him. It harmonizes to the way it ends. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. <clears throat> 